Welcome to the ElfQuest Show, the internet's only fan-made podcast series dedicated to the long-running, award-winning, epic fantasy series ElfQuest, created by Wendy and Richard Peeney. I'm David Mizajewski, also known as Thornbreak on the ElfQuest forums. Joining me is my friend and fellow ElfQuest uber geek, Ryan Brown. Ryan's our editor and producer, working the magic to put this podcast together. Welcome back, everybody. We are back to talk about issue number nine of The Final Quest, and this is episode 18 of The Elf Quest Show. I cannot believe that we've done 18 of these episodes, Ryan. That's amazing. It's crazy that we're already at that number. Wow. I know. We, we actually, uh, since our last episode, I think we hit our one-year anniversary. We did, yeah. Did we talk about that in the last episode? I, I honestly can't remember. I, I don't think we did because I think the episode came out before. Yeah, because the last um, episode came out um, when issue um, eight came out, which was in March. And the anniversary, I think, was something like April 15th or something. That's right. So yes, happy anniversary. Facebook. Happy anniversary. <laughs> Woo! I know. It's kind of crazy to think that um, we've been doing this for a year and that we've like got 17 episodes under our belt and just the endless hours of talk of ElfQuest. It's kind of awesome. <laughs> it, it is awesome. It's incredible. <laughs> um, wow. A year already, a year of final quest, a year of the podcast. Amazing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's over a year of final quest. It's final quest is like two years, two, two and a half years at this point, isn't it? No. Cause we didn't start long? the pod. Well, it started, oh, yeah. uh, it'll be podcast. Um, till, right. It would have been April of, Right. It's about it's about one and a half years yeah. since the actual first issue came out. But it was going on on Boing Boing for, you know, nine, ten months before that. That is true. So it is sort of almost, you know, it's 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 around two years, I think, since we first saw the very beginning of uh, the Final Quest special. When was the first installment on Boing Boing? 2013? Yeah, I don't remember the exact date, but... It's been a while, wow. <laughs> which is good to reflect on because I hate to even bring this up, but, you know, we're already, you know, getting into the second of volume of what will be potentially four volumes of the final quest, you know, when they all, when they all come out in graphic novel form. So, you know, we're, we're, we're cruising along here. Um, so I think it's good to re- re- remind ourselves that we've been getting just amazing elf quest, you know, in, Full, in its full glory for, you know, a year plus, almost two years already. So let's enjoy that and, you know, stay in the now for the rest of it and not worry about the end looming because we're still a ways off from that. But uh, I was just thinking about that today. It's three more issues and we're going to be halfway done the final quest according to the current plan, right? That's right. Yeah. Again, if it's going to be four, four volumes, but that's actually um, a great segue into our announcements because um, something happened just the other day that you actually found and posted to Facebook. And that is that um, Dark Horse has already put out the um, solicitations for the Final Quest Volume 2 graphic novel. The Final Quest you know, Volume 1 just, just came out a month or so ago. And so um, they're already you know, putting out, you know, and, and it's available for pre-order on Amazon. I don't know if it's available on Tifa or any place else yet, but, um, but it's pretty amazing. It's not, yeah, it's not slated to come out until January 
2016. So it's still a ways off, but um, but it will contain the issues that have been published in you know the year 2015, basically. Right. Yeah. So issues seven to twelve. Right. And in fact, let's see. I have it called up here. If you want to pre-order it now, it's only 17.99. Um, you know, so that's probably a few dollars cheaper than it will be when it actually comes out. So for everybody who is budget conscious or wants to, just wants to save a buck, um, I would say go ahead and pre-order it. Um, I can say this too, that Amazon seems to have gotten its act together in terms of shipping the books. I know when the first edition came out, it uh, or actually no, the, the complete ElfQuest volumes, one and two, um, when one came out, a lot of us, myself included, our copies were damaged when Amazon shipped them because they didn't really ship them well. And when I got volume two and when I got volume one of the final quest graphic novel, um, they were packed much better. So I have a lot more confidence in Amazon than I did after that first experience. I don't know what happened on their end, but maybe they got enough complaints from ElfQuest fans that they stepped up their game. <laughs> well, I, I hope so because it was pretty poor form on their part, but, um, and I think we might have mentioned it last episode, but I can't remember. But since the, we you know, kind of brought up the topic of the, the Complete ElfQuest books, um, the Qu Complete ElfQuest Volume 1, um, again, had that, uh, at least the first printing, had that sort of misprint of the pages that a lot of folks were dissatisfied with. And I actually was able to get in contact with Amazon. And as of February 15th, all of their stock is a second printing of that volume with the page corrected. So I just wanted to share that for folks to know that, um, you know, if you if you have a copy of the book that's misprinted, I would file it away because it'll be a collector's item someday. And, you know, go ahead and order yourself a, a new copy because it is so cheap. It's like 20 bucks for the entire 700 plus pages original quest. So. Um, so, yeah, I actually I saw a copy of it in a bookstore a couple of weeks ago and I. I leafed through it, and um, yeah, it had the corrected page. So, oh, that's awesome! Cool. Yeah, yeah you know, I've been seeing, out there now. I've been seeing people posting pictures online, you know, on Facebook and stuff um, of the actual books on the on the shelf in the bookstore. And what it actually made me think of is how infrequently I actually go into a bookstore anymore, which is kind of it. You know, it's well, it's a wonder they even exist now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I literally haven't been in a bookstore. I can't even remember the last time. So if, if and when I do, I, of course, will be going right to the graphic novel section and pulling ElfQuest out and facing it out if it's sort of put in, you know, with only its binding showing so that everybody can see its amazingness. But um, I need to make a plan to go do that because, um, yeah, <laughs> the I mean, I, I employees will be watching you wondering what the hell you're doing. <laughs> Listen, I've I've I'm I have no shame. I do it with my own book, so you know you gotta if if you can't promote yourself, no one else is gonna. So that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's right. So um so anyway, yeah. So that was that was really the only bit of news that we had. Um, is that the Final Quest Volume Two is available for pre order on Amazon, um, seventeen ninety nine. So go check it out. And one note that um, I think is important to mention too is that it's actually the the cover that you'll see for the pre order is actually not going to be the actual cover of the book. Um, it's basically Dark Horse had to had to get in their you know, all of their stuff for the Amazon pre-order process before Wendy and Richard have really finalized what they want on the cover. So 
what you see there, it's actually the cover of issue number seven, um, the infamous, you know, shirtless Cutter and Skywise that caused such a kerfuffle over on the Dark Horse Facebook page. Um, exactly, yeah. So, um, so anyway, just FYI, because I know some folks will probably wonder about that, and and um, you know, in a few in a few weeks or months, when Dark Horse gets the finalized art, they'll have Amazon update it. Really? Oh, okay. That's uh, I wasn't expecting that. I actually like the look of it. So. Right. Or is there going to be, yeah, like now that that's stuck in my head, anything that, however it's changed, is going to look, I think, strange to me. I'll have to get used to it because now this is like the idea of volume two that's in I my know. head now. Yeah. Well, I actually, you know, given how how much of the the sort of comics fanboys reacted negatively to the, just the idea of these like two buff shirtless guys like not fighting or killing something on the cover and how uncomfortable it made so many people i i i, I when i saw it i thought oh my gosh you know dark horse has is sort of geniusly thumbing their nose at all of those sort of critics of wendy's art style but it's not that at all it's just that they had nothing else to, to put on there by the time they had to get their stuff in but um yeah richard shared that on facebook um so um, probably some folks saw it. Yeah, yeah. Some folks probably saw it, and probably a lot didn't. That's why I wanted to mention it. Okay. Did he give any suggestion as to what will be on the cover? All he said in his comment, if I recall correctly, um, was that it is art that we have not seen yet. So I don't know um, if that's just, if it's just going to be you know a cover for an upcoming issue that we have not seen, or if Wendy's going to do totally new art. I would imagine it's probably going to be a cover. Um, just because the covers are so great and, you know, Wendy is, she's already churning out amazing actual comics pages. So I wouldn't be surprised if they repurposed a cover like they did for, well, for the volume one. For volume one. That would make sense. It would be cool if she did original artwork for it, but I, yeah, I'd understand. I was just going to say, I would not cry if Wendy chose to do some amazing new piece of art for the cover. No, that would be amazing. You know what my gut is right now, what I'm thinking? My gut feeling is that it might be the um, the freakout image. Oh. The freakout image. I'm, I wonder if that could be it. Yeah, because, well, my, I'm thinking that we're going to get that story plot point in issue 12. That's okay, my, which would my, be uh, issue twelve would be the last issue in the um, in volume two, basically, right? Right, and yeah. if you read the synopsis here for volume two, mm -hmm. um, it's it, there's the this sentence here. It says, uh, "At long last, the seeds planted twenty thousand years ago in the original classic quest can come to fruition, but a devastating secret, long hidden in plain sight, is also moving into the light." When the full impact of this revelation becomes known, it will affect the entire elfin race forever. Oh yeah, dun, dun, dun. right. Yeah, you're right. Oh. I mean, if that if that isn't in reference, or if that is not somehow connected to the freakout image, I would be surprised. That's absolutely what they're referencing. Well, we'll have to wait <laughs> to see, to won't we? What else would it be? <laughs> Wendy specifically said when she first posted that teaser image years ago that it was. Uh, it had something to do with a revelation. Right. Yeah. No, I remember that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
we'll have to be patient and see both what the cover ends up being and what actually happens in the story. But yeah, I mean, I'm pretty certain I would agree that, um, that we've got to end up seeing that image somewhere, whether it's part of a cover or in the comics or I don't even know, but, um, I'm dying to find out. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, it, I think it, 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 that's, that's the one image that keeps coming up, um, that I keep seeing people wondering about. And, of course, you know, Wendy has dropped some cryptic clues about it. Like, there's something missing. What is it? Well, there's a lot of things missing. His shirt, his, you know, his sword, Skywise, the sun top and ember, sunstream and ember. So, you know, who really knows? Well, do you have any speculation, just quickly, as to what you think this could be? A, a long-hidden secret, or a, a devastating secret, long-hidden in plain sight? You know, I... <sighs> I could, I could probably, we could probably fill up an entire episode just wondering about that. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And I'm kind of, I want to, I almost don't want to think about it too much because I don't want to, like, I kind of want to enjoy the surprise when it comes along. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I can't help myself though. <laughs> I have to speculate about it. <laughs> I'm racking my brain trying to figure out what it is. Like, hidden in plain sight. So. I mean, it could it could literally be almost anything, right? I mean, it could be it could be something literal. That could be literal. It could be something. It could be a twist on words. I mean, I don't know. So that's why I I kind of I, I like to speculate to a point, but then I also to kind of just like go with the flow and and just see what happens as it happens. So um, yeah, so issue number nine, um, kind of. It, I guess maybe let's start talking about the big picture um, before we talk about the specifics. So, you know, the last, really the last um, two issues have been sort of big kind of revelations and, you know, Sunstream sends out the call. We see all these other mystery elves. Um, You know, it's really kind of kickstarting the actual core story of the final quest. And I feel like um, in this episode, things, um, things are moving, but the, 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 um, and it's not even like the pace is slowed down, but it's like the events are not the epic events. They're sort of the the smaller events that are now going to sort of take us down the pathway of this particular quest to kind of figure out this whole bit about reconnecting all of the missing elves all across the, the planet. Definitely. Yeah, it seems to be a bit of a slowdown in pace. Um, things aren't as grand in scale in this issue. Uh, it's much more about... Um, character development i found well see i don't know i wouldn't say that the pace is slow because if you think about that like, a lot of stuff happens i just think that the the actual things the the events are smaller building blocks they're not like big bombshells you know so right like smaller in scale mm-hmm. yeah i mean the gobacks you know arriving at the halt and you know we get some updates about or, or some movement forward in kind of two edges story, a little bit more revelation about him. And, you know, there, there are things that are obviously going to have, they're, they're the beginning of, of storylines that are going to play out over the course of probably the next, however many issues. But, you know, again, it's not like the last issue or two where we, we actually like Sunshine finally sent out the call that we've been hearing about for so long. Um, and I mean, you know, we, we, we haven't seen any, brand new elves in this issue. So that's what I mean. I think like the, the, the again, just the scale of the events is, is a little bit in the, the smaller day to day kind of thing. Yeah. A little bit more intimate. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to Epic. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, yeah. But so, yeah, speak- yeah, slower pace, probably not the right phrase, but. Yeah, but you know, I, I think as far as the character development goes, I mean, at the very beginning here, um, you know, I, I guess on page two, we have this great little chat, another great little chat between Windkin and Arori, and it's kind of neat because you know it's sort of taking their their relationship, which was one of kidnapper kidnapped when we first when they first sort of encountered each other to to Windkin reintroducing himself, and here. He's actually telling Aurori that he's glad that she kidnapped him because otherwise he would have probably kept his wolf blood and have been dead by now. And the interesting thing about this to me is that it's not like he's like, oh, and I would have, I would have been dead and that would have been awful. It, the, like the, the, the reason that being dead would be bad would be that he wasn't useful. You know, he says – and that would be a shame because I'm a, I mean, I'm useful, I'm helpful, a messenger. And so it, like that is a huge little bit of character development for Winkin because I think, you know, when he was sort of languishing in the Sun Village or the remnants of the Sun Village, you know, where he sort of forgot who he was, I feel like this is saying he's kind of found a new purpose and he likes having that purpose and it gives him a focus and, you know, just kind of neat. Yeah, it is. And um, Arori agrees with him, too. She says swift flying message message bearers will be needed now. Um, What do you make of that? I I can only imagine that it means that there will be a necessity or need for gliders to be flying between tribes to uh, deliver information and messages. I mean, obviously, that's already happened, right, with Winkin. He left Ember's tribe to go to the frozen mountains to find Vanka, and now he's... uh, He's bringing them all down to um, to the hold. Right, yeah. No, I thought that was a really interesting thing that Arori said, um, you know, that flying messengers will be needed. I mean, I almost, I, I feel like that line more than anything gives me this this sort of sense of what what's to come where, you know, you're going to have these elfin societies that are going to be separated by long distances and you know you know maybe taking palace pods is not going to be an option or practical or whatever and so they're just going to rely on good old their good old um you know gliding skill to swiftly go from point a to point b again to deliver messages it's kind of a neat thing that we haven't really encountered or or or, or seen in elf quest before you know it's always been these very distant scattered isolated tribes that were very difficult to get to get to and so this idea that these two might end up being like their job might be to be sort of the the pony express of the elfquest world where they're zipping back and forth you know taking messages and guiding people is kind of neat well i was thinking this immediately triggered in my mind when i read it the idea of um the uh, the god mercury the roman god i don't know what his greek counterpart is but um he was the messenger of the gods, right? And he flew to deliver messages in between. I, I, I think it was from Olympus to, I don't know, to the, more, the mortals and or um, amongst the immortals on Olympus. Um, but that's sort of an archetype that um, that Winkin seems to be sort of stepping into. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I'm not up on my, yeah, on all of my mythology, so I never would have thought of that. Yeah, it's just something that... Uh, that kind of stood out for me. Um, what do you think about them as far as developing any sort of relationship? Do you think that something's happening? Well, okay. So I, you know, I, I think we might've talked about this last issue uh, or last episode when, you know, when we see that, that, you know, during the Gobex orgy, the two of them 
you know, paired up and had their fun together. And, you know, the, the question, are they going to become love mates? What's, you know, what's that mean? And so I think the, and I was like, uh, I don't know. I mean, they're just enjoying, you know, the orgy. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything. And, and, you know, I was skeptical of the idea that the, like, literally the last two gliders, at least known to them are going to get together. Um, but something in this, in this issue, a huge little, huge yet subtle thing that Wendy and Richard put into this issue kind of makes me think that I, I was wrong. And that is, um, let's see, I'm flipping through. I'm trying to find the page. Okay. So if you go to page 15, um, after, you know, the, the go backs and everybody arrive in the, the caverns of the trolls under the Holt and they deal with the, um, with the misfit trolls. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, there's one little panel in the top corner there. Um, and, you know, Venka is basically talking. She's talking about Two Edge. But in the corner, you see Winkin, Audrey, and Rory. And Audrey has this, like, huh? Look at, and she's kind of looking up at, at Rory. And she's like, hmm. So she must sense that there's some something going on and w- maybe feel a little bit insecure. Yeah. Right? I, I absolutely noticed that too. Yeah. She's definitely sizing her up, trying to figure out what's going on. Totally. And again, another little genius bit of, like, there's no words there. There's no explanation. It's kind of left for those of us to see it or not. And who knows if, the, if it will actually play out on the, on the front, on the center stage or not, or if it will just be something, you know, this sort of question of how the three of them are interrelating. I could actually see the three of them, now that I say that, um, getting into, a, you know, sort of a three-mating. Yeah, it's possible. Anything could happen. Um, yeah, I, d- I definitely think, though, that there's some sort of romantic spark happening between Winkin and Arori. Although we have said in the past in other shows that he seems to be more like um, he's less likely to settle down in that sense with one with one love mate. He seems to be more uh, along the lines of a, a Skywise in that respect. And, and just by virtue of the fact that his character, um, his disposition is to be a loner. A little bit, or or has been at least. Um, he seems very independent, right? Well, and and all of, all of that just makes this all this this sort of line of discussion even more fascinating because I really want to know like what is what is Winkin going to do? Is um, you know how is how is his character going to develop? And I think it's so cool that he has come into the limelight so much in the final quest because you know they very easily Wendy and Richard very easily could have just had him be, you know, not a center stage character and just another background character. They could have even chosen to not even like leave his story to sort of an open-ended question and not really brought him in at all. But for whatever reason, they chose to incorporate him into the story. So I'm actually really fascinated to see what will happen when Rayek shows up at the palace, which is how this issue ends. Um, I kind of want to see Rayek and, and Winkin interact. Because those two, I mean, except when Winkin was a very tiny baby and was, you know, Winnow Will's prisoner, um, the two of them have never met or interacted. So, and since they both sort of have a little bit of a, um, n- not so much lately, but, you know, Winkin can have a little bit of a haughtiness about him. So I'm just, it, I, that meeting would be interesting to see. Oh, and plus they're both, they're both floaters. So that would be kind of a cool interaction too. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was thinking how 
I can't wait to see the interaction between Rayek and Sunstream because those two haven't seen each other in, since Kings of the Broken Wheel, right? Or no, wait, they no, it was, wasn't it? No, the last or briefly they saw each other. Briefly they saw each other during Hidden Years when Rayek took them to the Sun Village. Exactly. But since then they haven't interacted with each other. So the last time Rayek interacted with Sunstream was when first of all he was still called Suntop. It's ten thousand years ago. No, and, no, no. Um, no, no, no. I mean, he was the, still, Sun. No, when? So, so the episode or the issue of Hidden Years, Hidden Years number four, when Rayek takes then Suntop back to the palace to train with Sava. Um, that would be that would be just before the events of of like shards and the forever green and then ember's branch of uh the tribe in hidden year so that would be 40 ish years ago maybe 50 oh yeah years what ago. am i talking about yeah 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 right, right. but still that, okay, that, yes. that, no of that's course. a long that's time been, yeah and actually and actually he was still a, a boy sun top was still a, a child for all intents and purposes and um but that's not the last time that they saw each other yeah they had I'm remembering it would be shard 16 it would be the end of shards and the tying up of all of those three storylines back into oh, yeah, yeah. into one where um, where you know they rescue the shards of the palace and they go and collect Dart and Suntop and Yun um, and the others that were and Chemo that were in in the Forever Green and then they well they first they rescue Ember's tribe from Winnow Will's shape change monsters or the aftermath of that. Then they go and get Dart and Suntop. Then they went up to um, to the Frozen Mountains and got the Gobacks. And that's when Venka and Arori and Two Edge went to go on their Kavi quest, which we now kind of know how that played out. But that would have been the last time. Um, and that is when Rayek chose to, for the sake of all the other elves, leave the palace so that Winnow Will would not be a threat. And... Um, and that's all I, I gave all that background because it's it's totally relevant to what's happening now. And you know, to skip to the end of this issue, um, you know, we saw Rayek and Sunstream or Rayek and Ekwar and Winnowill last issue when the pa- call for the palace went out and it woke Winnowill's sleeping spirit up. And you know, she zapped Ekwar and Rayek really had to struggle with all of his willpower to sort of force her spirit back into sort of a you know a, 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 a forced sleep. And then in that issue, um, and I think we talked about this last time because I was kind of like rolling my eyes a little bit because Rayek was being like kind of a little bit of a martyr. Like, well, no one, you know, no one tried to stop me when I walked off. So, you know, I don't know if they're going to want me back. And and we see that continued in the, the very end of this issue. Or actually, wait, maybe it's not the very end. Um, it's the last panel we see them arriving, but I guess... It's like in the middle. It's in the middle somewhere. Uh, here we go. It's on page uh, fourteen, and um, and so we see two panels. Of, I love that drawing. Oh my god, it's awesome! Yeah. Right? I I love the two. So that's the type of drawing that that Wendy does that reminds me of the um, European um, graphic novels, the like French graphic novels. I don't know if you know much about them, but they they have like there's a very European style graphic novels a lot of them are fantasy um and, and this sort of captures that essence when i see drawings like this by her it reminds me of that very viscerally 
the panel of Rayek. Where where Rayek's holding Equar and they're floating. There's okay. just something about the. I don't know if it's the line quality or or what, but there's it just really uh, reminds me of um, a lot of the uh, the the French graphic novels like Mobius and Thorgal. Yeah, this is really cool. Yeah, well, that panel stood anyway, out to me. Was, <laughs> side yeah. note. No, it stood out to me um, too. And I guess my closest thing would be to say that it reminded me of the the sort of really um, detailed oriented art from the original quest, like the second half of the original quest. Um, well, yeah, exactly. And that that was at least I saw it as being influenced when he was doing that as being influenced by what was happening in Europe at the time with uh, with the work that people like uh, Mobius was doing. Um, well, that'd be an interesting yeah. question um, to see, you know, when Wendy listens to this and comments on it, um, I'm curious if there was, if there is any connection there, because I've never heard any reference to that kind of influence, but, you know, who knows? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it was directly influenced uh, or not, but um, certainly I, I see some um, similarity. Similarities, yeah. I, I and I misspoke. It's not Mobius is the name of the graphic novel. Um, it's Jean Giraud, if right. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, is the artist. Yeah, I'm b- broadly familiar. But he with called it. himself Mobius, right? Convolute, but yeah. But I've never read it. Um, it so, um, yeah. But, but if you Google his work, though, you'll see there's some elements that stylistically seem to kind of have some similarities there. Uh huh. I definitely will do that. Yeah. Um But yeah. So so. <laughs> Going back to what I was saying about Ray kind of being a little bit of a, a martyr and, and kind of whiny about his choice to capture Winnow Will's spirit and then leave, you know, it, it was such a noble act and it really deepened my respect for Rayek. And I'm not a Rayekator. I kind of like him and I think that he's sort of a tortured soul, um, uh, largely of his own making. But at the end of Shards, when we kind of last saw him, I... I really, he, he rose up a couple notches when he did that, but these comments that he's making and these last couple issues kind of make me backpedal a little bit on that. Because again, he's sort of like, well, you know, if the other elves don't do what I want, then I'm just going to take my toys and leave in a huff is kind of what he's saying. You know, Ekwar is saying, I mean, basically, you know, Ekwar is saying like, maybe we can finally find peace in the palace. And, and Rayk is like, well, you know, if they don't even bother trying to heal Winnowill and so that I can like love her and whatever, then I'm not even going to try to stay. I'm just going to go off and you know, pick up my toys and leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but he's always been like that, right? He's so prideful and yeah. Um, what, what I question about this is why would he even risk going back to the palace at this point? He put himself into a self-imposed exile um, because he knew that being around the palace while he contained the spirit of Winnowill was extremely dangerous um, because she could easily access the, the, um, the power right. uh, of the palace in order to, you know, uh, do whatever she wanted to in that exact revenge on, on the elves. Um, so I, I wonder why he would at this point after 40 odd years of wandering decide that he's going to go risk that again. And that first of all, that, can elf spirits be healed? That's what he seems to be gunning towards here. He wants to go to the palace so that her spirit will be healed. 
I don't know how that's going to happen. Like, she's going to find peace in the palace, even after what had already occurred. Um, he's going to put all these elves into danger by doing this. Well, again, that would be a typical Raic move, wouldn't it? <laughs> Definitely it would. But what what is it at this point that's triggered it? Is he just so exhausted of containing her spirit for so long that he's ready to take that risk? Well, I think part of it is what you just said, that it's been 40-plus years, right? So when he first contained her spirit, he had no experience with what that would be like. And so he was like, I'm just going to get out of here because I don't want her to escape or whatever and and hurt all of you or whatever, which again was a very noble act. So I would imagine that he's got a little bit more experience, um, even though she sometimes does wake up and slip out of his control momentarily, like we saw last issue. But I think that would probably be part of it. And I have to guess... Um, based on Shen Shen's comments, which we can talk about that one scene with Shen Shen, um, you know, where she is, is trekking to go find Shukapek and she does find him. Um, but she's, you know, she's having this little, you know, internal monologue, like, oh my God, the call is so strong and I really want to follow it, but I have to suppress it if I'm going to go on this, you know, on this journey that I have chosen to do. So I would imagine that Rayek is also kind of feeling that like this irresistible, pull of the call that Sunstream is putting out and that I, you know, I don't think it's, 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 um, it's, I think it's totally in line with what I would imagine him to, to, to do, to take that risk. Um, you know, he probably feels like the risk is fairly minimal and like, if they're gonna, if they're gonna ever go back to the palace, now is the time to do it. Well, exactly. You know what, now that you said that it could possibly be too, that he senses the, that the palace is at full energy potential i guess uh that that's been communicated to him through the send through sun sunstream send um so he figures okay now maybe there's the opportunity to actually do something right uh but he certainly hasn't learned any of the lessons uh, of his past uh no big surprise there i guess not but um <laughs> you know the the whole thing about uh, to be healed you have to want it i mean it has to be on the part of the the person um, who's getting the healing. It can't be forced. I, that was the lesson that, that um, Lita learned, right? Uh, and and um, Rayek was a part of that, I think, was he not? Uh, when she told, yeah, in Kings of the Broken Wheel, remember she said to her, to, she, Lita said to Rayek, I, I can't heal her without her consent, basically, to paraphrase it. I mean, he's, he's so... Uh, self um you know it's just it's all about him well he's just like set in his mind if if somebody says something that doesn't agree with what he thinks or feels it just doesn't it just like like falls off like you know it just it just deflects like you know he and that's i think maybe what's going on here because you're well yeah because you're right i mean it's already been established that winnow will really basically has chosen to be what she is like she's not necessarily ill anymore and i think that's what that's one of the reasons why i kind of it grates on me a little bit when people say well winnow will has become one-dimensional now she's just like the big villain and it's like no follow and watch closely what happens with winnow will yes sure she is this sort of bigger bigger villain than she was maybe in the in the very beginning where she had very sort of very, um, for lack of a better word, human motivations. You know, she, 
she was starving for love and she was starving to use her powers and everything. But if you follow her story arc through Siege of Blue Mountain, through Kings of the Broken Wheel and the 10,000 years she spent under the ocean, she says it at the end of Kings of the Broken Wheel. She's like, you know, I spent, you know, the, oh, I, I let go of all that, that madness and, and, you know, whatever, spending 10,000 years under the waves. And then in Shards, she says deliberately, she's like, I've essentially chosen to be the way that I am. I want to be this wife. To me, love is pain and I want, I don't embrace love. I don't want love and I'm going to fight against love. And that's essentially what defines her character now. And so um, that and sort of a, a sort of a sadistic element, but she always had that, um, you know, torturing and whatever just for, so anyway, um, I don't know whether or not her spirit can be healed or not. Ray obviously thinks it's chance and it's worth risking to go to the palace. And again, I think that's ultimately a selfish thing because he wants, you know, cause he loves her and he wants her to sort of, I have wonder how much of his own desire for power plays into that though, that on some level deep down there's within him, the, um, the urge to regain his former position as master of the palace. Um, knowing full well that if he could, potentially get rid of win a will or have her healed have you um that he could then take his his place in his mind his rightful place as master and this is what this is why i'm interested to see what sort of um encounter he's going to have with sunstream because sunstream might see rayak as a threat and i would be really interested to see if maybe sunstream and Rayek will get odds with each other, and there might be some kind of showdown of some sort. Because, I mean, look at how powerful Sunstream is now. I, w- I would not doubt that he could fight Rayek, maybe not necessarily physically, but definitely through sending, at least. I, you know, I, I don't know. We've never seen Sunstream actually use his sending ability uh, in a... Um, in an attack mode, I guess, um, an offensive mode. But it would be interesting to see if he actually does have that ability because I, I could imagine that he could stand sort of as Rayek's equal in terms of you know the, the level of their ability uh, as far as magic is concerned. Yeah, so um, I that thought never even entered my mind, but now that you've said it, Wow, how fascinating. What a cool thing that would be to see Rayek get taken down a notch by Sunstream, who he has essentially always had a good relationship with. Yeah, well, see, I always really liked their relationship. It was this really interesting dynamic that they had where it was almost as though Rayek sort of wished that Sun Top was his own son. Yeah. Um, there was definitely sort of a mentor-teacher thing going on. There was a mutual respect, which was really interesting because Suntop was so young in comparison to Rayak, and yet Rayak respected Suntop as an adult. Yeah. And I think Suntop really appreciated that because obviously Suntop was wise beyond his years due to his, you know, his abilities. And Rayak really respected that in Suntop and, and treated him like an equal. Um, which I really, I really always enjoyed that aspect. So I, I'm really hoping that we get to see them interact with each other again and like i said it it will be uh, doubly interesting if in fact they sort of 
lock horns. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it, I think it, it's exactly the way that you just described Rayek interacting and treating, interacting with and treating then Suntop as sort of, you know, respectful and, and almost as an adult. That's exactly why Cutter and Lita d- didn't let Rayek just take Suntop to go answer the cry from beyond during the Kings of the Broken Wheel storyline. In fact, I think they said something like, you know, your love demands more than he can give because Rayek does not know how to relate to a child and the demands that he would have put on Suntop at that point probably would have overwhelmed him. Um, and so, it, so anyway, that's just, that just made me think of that. Yeah, it would be really, I, well, I'll put it this way. I'm now even more curious to see what's going to happen next issue because it's got a next issue has to start at least with Ray coming into the palace. Cause that's where this issue ends. So, um, and, and we know this, we know that by the end of the final quest, Ray is still wandering the, the world of two moons with Winnow will, right? So something's going to go down where he, you know, he, he chooses to leave the palace. Now, I can't imagine that that is just going to be something that happens in a couple panels and he just decides, well, all right, fine, I'm just going to leave. This is Rayek we're talking about. There's going to be some kind of drama and conflict centered around all this. And so um, the idea that it might be centered around between some kind of disagreement or a clash between Rayek and Sunstream is really fascinating to me. Um, yeah, and I, what I, I think, too, is that obviously... Uh, Sunstream is his cutter's or his father's son as much as uh, as his mother's, um, and I mean he knows full well what happened uh, with with Rayek, Cutter, and Lita, and then of course um, the big blow up between Cutter and Rayek when they you know settled the score. Um, I I'm interested to see how how much of Cutter is in Sunstream, and. Uh, if that will, you know, sort of be brought to the surface in some sort of, um, uh, you know, with with Rayek, if if that aspect of Sunstream comes to the fore. You know, I I think that we've already seen a little bit of that in the Full Circle storyline, where Sunstream, well, what where Sunstream became Sunstream, where he earned his name by fighting the dark pool of magic that lingered in the old Holt, um, and I. Yeah, but that wasn't that wasn't feral in the sense of like that that wolf rider instinctual. Yeah, but I think that, I think I think that that's what I was going to say though. I don't think that's on top, and and that's where I think I'll be what I'll be, you know, comes in because he tried to be that he tried to be more wolf ridery and wild to prove to Cutter that he he was being he was being true to his wolf rider heritage and and he failed because he was trying to be something he wasn't he he channeled his wolf rideriness in a way that only he could in that story and i think that's and that was an awesome thing um so i don't i don't know that we'll see sunstream suddenly get like you know a vicious streak um and and like at least i think i think if there's a conflict between him and rick then it's going to be handled a lot more subtly. And that same, like the Wolf Rider strength and tenacity is going to come out, but it's going to come out, you know, through the lens of Sunstream, right. And how he is and has chosen to be and all of that kind of stuff. So um, I, I take your point and I, I agree with you to a point, but I will add that we haven't seen 
Sunstream in a put into a position where his his family was threatened. So if I can imagine that if at some point um, Brill and Corafe are in the palace with him, and then Rayek, let's say, threatens not by whatever he wants to do, that that might draw something out of Sunstream um, that's never really been explored before or that maybe even sunstream isn't aware is there no and and i i i totally see what you're saying and i could totally see that happening and and who knows i mean if anything of if anyone on his wolf rider side sunstream is you know sort of his his grandmother's grandchild right so you know joy leaf you know so i think so much of her kind of wisdom and caution and peacefulness kind of comes through in Sunstream. But we all know if Joy Leaf is pissed off that, you know, if you go back to the Wolf Rider story where she basically tied Bearclaw up and left him sitting out there to think about all the wrong he did, you know, so, you know, who knows? You know, maybe Sunstream will have that moment where um, his power, he, where he has to use his power aggressively, I guess is probably the, the right word. It would it would be very interesting. You, you did mention it uh, about... The fact that Rogue's Curse exists, and we know that Rayek still has um, the spirit of Winnowill entrapped in, within him, um, it does sort of create the situation here. It's like the, the Superboy effect, right? Where, you know, you had comics about Superboy. You knew the trouble that he got into was really that serious because he had... I think there's, there's a slight bit of that happening with Rick because we know that Winnow Will is not healed or is is still trapped within him by the era of Rogue's Curse, which is several hundred years in the future from the final quest. We know as readers that what he wants to do is not going to succeed. Having said that though, the only what's what will be interesting is finding out why. Exactly. Why he's not successful. Exactly. And that's what what I was just going to say too. Like, yeah, you're right on the on the one hand, but you know whether or not Winnowill's spirit gets healed is not the crux of what this story is about. And so, you know, yes, sure, we know that she isn't going to be healed, but there's so much between now and then that could happen. Like, literally everything we were just talking about about the the possible battles that Rayek might end up facing and what the conversations are going to be and what the dynamics are now with how the Sunfolk have changed. And um, I mean, what's going to happen when Rayek walks into the palace and encounters all of his, the former tribe that he sort of looked down his nose at because they didn't practice magic. And I mean, he says that like for all their heightened use of the old powers um, if the Sunfolk and Timane refuse to forgive and welcome Winnable Spirit, then I'm going to leave, or whatever. That's what he says. I'm reading it right there. So, I mean, he, even he is recognizing that the Sunfolk have risen in magical powers. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I have to guess that most of the Sunfolk will welcome Ray with open arms because they always did. But yeah, and he'll just give them the finger. Right. Well, right. And it'll be interesting to see. Like, they're, they're, they're probably a head taller than he is now. They're probably you know, able to do things in the palace that he never would have thought that they would have been able to do. How's he going to respond to that? Is he going to, is he going to encourage it? Is he going to be proud of them? Or is he going to scoff at it and say, well, I can do this and more, you know? So there's so, yeah. And so all of that is just to say, yeah, all of that is just to say that, you know, there's a lot of cool, interesting story that 
can happen between what we're seeing now and the ultimate fate of them still wandering the planet 400 years later. Well, wait until he uh, comes back into contact with Sava. Mm -hmm. I mean, how is that going to play out? That's going to be really interesting. Plus Tamain. Right. Well, let's let's I mean that let's shift to to talking about those two because for me those scenes were probably the most powerful. The the scene between Timane, Sava and and uh, Skywise. Um I'm scrolling back up to them now, but um that whole scene I think probably is the 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 anchor of this whole issue because we 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 kind of we finally have it said that this whole idea that they are they're why they're not they're deliberately not overusing the palace and and we've all kind of speculated and we've talked about it before about this whole idea that that really was Timane's sacrifice right this whole idea that she chose to stay in the world of two moons because she thought it had something to teach her and teach her her offspring and that that was a good thing right and so you know we Skywise is getting ready to hop off in a palace pod and zip around and go collect all these random groups of elves and bring them back. Well, this is what I suggested uh, for in the last episode, right? That after the call went out, that why wouldn't Skywise take pods and go collect everyone? That's what I expected to happen. And then here we have the answer as to why uh, he can't do that, right? We've got Tamain saying, no, that can't happen. The The whole idea here is that in order to, to see who's... Um, I don't want to say worthy, but uh, ready to either stay or leave on the two moons, uh, stay or leave on the world of two moons. Um, they they need to go through trials uh, to to get to the palace. Yeah, and that will determine whether or not they're ready. Exactly, and and what's so amazing about it is that you know here are these beings that at this stage of the the game in the story they could do almost anything. They have such tremendous power. And so their their strength is in their restraint. And Timane and, and Sava are wise enough to see that and know that. And so, you know, you know, we've talked a lot about how the palace is so powerful that it could be a real plot ruiner because it could solve almost anything. And 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 here it's almost codified in in the story itself, not just us saying it outside of the context of the story. The, the elves themselves recognize that, or at least the, the, the you know, the wise ones like Tamane and, and Sava. And they're saying like, you know, listen, if any of this is going to be worth it, we can't just, you know, wave a magic wand and make it so like, that's the lesson. That's the lesson of pain that was so important. And I just, I loved that it kind of came out in this way and that, uh, that Skywise was just, you know, bless his heart, was just so excited about being able to zip around the planet in the pod that he just wanted to go do that. And Timane's like, no. And then he kept pushing it. And then we get this like zoom in on her eyes and she's like, no. And in like with an exclamation point. And it really just reminded me that that, that one particular panel of, you know, we hear a lot about Cutter and his Wolf Rider Chieftain icy blue stare that just intimidates. And I mean, if Someone like Timane, if I was standing there in Skywise's boots and she gave me that look and said no like that, I think I would just like melt into a puddle and, you know, drain away. So, so, but, but, well, the other thing that I love about this is not just that 
you know, we, we, we hear from the elves themselves why they're not overusing the palace. Um, and that, you know, we kind of see Tamane kind of not just being statuesque, right? And goddess-like. She's actually kind of being emphatic and stern. But the thing that I love the best, I think, about it all is that Sava then comes in. Like, cool, calm, wise Sava in, and does what she does best. She kind of comes in in this, like, I don't know, just uber maternal, calming, soothing way and really just explains in very simple way, simple terms, what this, all this complexity is about and why it's important. And um, I don't know, I just loved it. I love that Sava is still playing this role even now in the final quest. And, you know, we, we've talked before about, well, what is Sava's role now that she's in the palace with Timane? And I think it couldn't be clearer, you know, Sava is is kind of a you know uh, a high priestess or maybe even an angel to Timaine's goddess. Oh, that's a really really uh, good way to put it. Yeah. You know, and so she yeah. like, like I didn't think like that before, but that's she's almost like a mediator. Yeah, and and what between the goddess and and the uh, the mortal. Yeah, and and and, yeah. and and this is all my. Obviously, my wheels are turning because you can hear how excited I'm getting. Um, I'm just thinking, too, that with that exact kind of analogy there, the reason is, is that Sava was born there. She is part of the world of two moons. And so she can kind of be this go between, you know, she's such a magical being and a spiritual being and so connected into the her heritage, her magical heritage and the high one heritage that she's only, you know, a generation or two removed from. Um, yet because she had all of her own trials living as a real creature of the world of two moons, she better than anybody can, can interpret for the, the, the really close to the earth elves, like the wolf riders or even her, her sun folk descendants who are much further away from, from being high ones. Like she has that ability because she's walked both paths and she can kind of step in and where Timane is, again, she's this sort of ethereal creature, eons old. And, you know, who probably, I think, I think Timane's aloofness and iciness that a lot of people have commented on is just because she, she is aloof. She is a, a creature like beyond our ability to really understand and comprehend. Whereas Sava has that element too, but she's much more earthbound, if you will, and and can kind of shift between those two aspects of her personality where Timane can't. Like she is she is who she is. She's this immense, immensely old, powerful being. And she's just like she's kind of blunt. <laughs> yeah, like her her mind operates on a completely different level than than anyone else. Right. Um yeah, and she is very blind. I mean, she has no need not to exactly. be. Um, the, you know, though, it, it's almost uh, sinister or authoritarian the way she um, she responds to Skywise, and I it, it kind of unsettled me actually how just direct and uh, blunt she was with him about it. Um, it makes me think of uh, in Lord of the Rings with uh, Galadriel when she when she has the ring and she becomes a villain, so powerful, a villain. Um, not not that I could see Tamane 
necessarily going in that direction, but that it's like that level of power. It's it, it it's there within her, and it's it's almost like a terrible power. It's so overwhelming. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing, you know, a glimpse of the terrible power and, and terrible in the definition of just overwhelming and awesome, not necessarily with a negative connotation. But I think, yeah, that that is what Timmy is and what she represents. But 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 still, like this, like the thing that that tempers all of that is the fact that she knows that she has that power and she is deliberately like like her her leadership and her her wisdom is that she knows that she needs to set the example that you can't just have magic solutions to everything you know so it's like she in this very scene is is showing that 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 potential for her to sort of be authoritarian and dictative or whatever is is not a path that she's willing to go down. Like, and she's willing to be blunt about it. Um, yeah. Well, she, she even said in full circle, right. She understands the gift of pain. Right. Um, and so she understands how important it is to her, her progeny or descendants to, to also understand what the gift of pain is. And that, that, you know, to exist is to, to suffer really. And so she understands that that's part of it. And that through that suffering, then they'll find, you know, whatever it is that they're they're looking for. I guess they're looking for home, ultimately. So. Right. Yeah. Well, and and not to mention the fact that Skywise's little plan to take palace pods out and collect everybody would have been just a terrible idea. I mean, imagine if if he did that with the wave dancers and just showed up in Crest Point and had to face Surge. Like, what would happen? Or I mean, we we could tell from the expressions on those tree elves that they're probably a little bit going to be a little bit uh, cautious and defensive about what this call means and everything. So, if not downright dangerous, exactly. I mean, imagine if if Skyways had access to the palace and showed up at Blue at Blue Mountain when you know before everything went down in the original quest, and he encountered Winnowill at that stage of the game. I mean, she would have just taken over, you know? So, so, you know, at the end of the day, Skywise, I think is just getting overexcited and letting his enthusiasm get the better of him and not really thinking it through anyway. So I, you know, speaking of the pods, though, I was wondering if they would um, leave one in the hold, sort of like the family car. <laughs> Right. Well, that yeah. I, I mean, mean, it would make that sense. is an idea because Skyways could fly it, but then at the same time, he could just send from the Holt to Sunstream and have have one sent. Yeah, that's true. But somebody would have to guide. That's true. It. Well, maybe Sunstream will be able to do that from afar. Possibly. I think they should just have one in the Holt though at all times. <laughs> I, I love the family car idea. <laughs> the, the minivan. Yeah. Let's go for a ride. Everybody can pile in. Yeah. <laughs> Station wagon. Sunday drive. <laughs> uh, I really like seeing um, how Skywise is sort of the audience character. Right. Yeah. So he's kind of kind of filling the role for us uh, as as the audience, um, asking the questions that we want to ask, and then we get the answers from Sava and Tamain. And you're right, definitely with Sava, she's got um, a foot in each world. 
one in the the ethereal immortal world and then the other in the more mortal uh material world uh and she bridges that gap yeah and she she definitely can communicate really abstract ideas in a simple way um that it, that makes it easier for a lot of the elves to understand and that actually that's something i i don't think we've ever really talked about before but the writing in elfquest is something that's really uh incredible i mean there's so so much of what wendy and richard have written in the series is it's so well written particularly things more abstract or concepts that are are sort of more abstract um, and they they do it in such a way that not only does it make sense within the the context of the story as it's being explained to these beings but also to us as readers um well for instance when um you know the whole thing about kings of the broken wheel and they're talking about time travel and rayek is is talking about you know how how it works basically and it's it's really it's really simplified but it's also really poetic the way that it's described by Wendy and Richard and it's such an important aspect of the series that I don't think really gets a lot of attention and it should yeah i agree i agree now that was that moment in kings of the broken wheel was was obviously a perfect example of what you're talking about. And I, 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 I completely agree that there's I, the way that this is written and they're, well, okay. So the way that I, the th- first thing that I thought of when you said that is, is the way that they write and know their characters and that they are so sort of complex and, and true to themselves as characters that it's sometimes hard for us, the readers, as well as some of the other characters in the stories to really kind of fathom where they're coming from. And I think that takes a tremendous amount of restraint and writing ability on the part of Wendy and Richard. Uh, I think Tamayne is a good example, again, in this scene. You know, it's like she she is who she is and she's going to respond in a certain way. It would have been really easy for them to just have her explain everything that Sava did. But that really wouldn't be who she is. Like, she's basically going to say, "Well, no, <laughs> boom," and that's it, because that's who she is, and it's in character for her. And the discipline that Wendy and Richard have with their characters like that is kind of impressive. Oh, absolutely. It's it, yeah, and it's just like you say, it's knowing they know their characters so well, um, and are able. Oh, there's yeah, lucky. there's lucky. <laughs> <laughs> there's what? There's one thing particularly here in Kings of the Broken Wheel. I'm just looking at it right now, but it's it still sends shivers down my spine um, where Rayek is, uh, he's floating off of the mountain and he's sending to Winnowill. And she says, go changer of what was, gather the sunfolk as a gift to celebrate the High One's salvation and make of Tamain an offering to herself. Yeah. You interrupted me, Lucky. <laughs> Yeah, but it's just so it's so powerful and and visceral and it just sends shivers down my spine, you know, and it it totally communicates that whole idea of what time travel is in such a in easily understandable way. Right. Yeah, but but yet at the same time still sort of mind-blowing, like the idea that you could present yourself to yourself, but yeah, it's it's crazy. Like it's like whoa, mind-blown. So remember when um Again, it was Rayek describing 
what spirit are and, and likening it to a flame and fire and how uh, Ember says something about won't they pop, you know, if if when they're time traveling and they encounter their own selves or whatever it was. But Rayek says like, no, the, the flames blend together and that's what spirit is. And it's like, whoa, that's such a a creative and clever way to write that concept and to communicate it. It's so, it's so well-written. It's so clever. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I think Rayek's response is one fire is all fire. And it's like, yeah, it's like poof, head explode, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, again, it's just an aspect I don't think gets a lot of attention in the in the series, and and it should. Yeah, no, I agree. Just uh, you know, I love that shot of Skywise. He's in the circle, the panel. It's circular. Yeah, he just there's something about him there that's so very Skywise to me, and it's there's like an animal aspect to it, and that. That to me is really it. It says so much about what the elves are as as beings. Like they're they're so they're they're like us, but they're so unlike us too. And there's something alien and animal almost about them. And there's just the way Wendy's drawn him there that really gets that point across. I couldn't agree more. I mean that that panel of Skywise was a standout one for me too. And um, I think what you're describing is exactly what um, you know, Wendy means when she says things like her characters, the Wolf Riders, are a blend between wild animals and angels. And I think this panel of Skyways really captures that. Here's this beautiful, now immortal creature that is just so far beyond what we humans could be, yet there's still like an animal quality about him. And um, yeah, it's definitely interesting. All right. Um, you know, I just I found the quote about Galadriel. I just wanted to read it. And I know Wendy and Richard don't want comparisons to Tolkien, but it's just what she says, like that that line where she says, um, she says, in place of a dark lord, you would have a queen, not dark, but beautiful and terrible as the dawn, treacherous as the sea, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. And that sort of element I feel exists within Tamain as well. That sort of, there's almost like a dangerous power that if she wanted to access it in a malevolent way, she could destroy everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. I think, I think, I think you're right. And, you know, as far as the comparison goes, I mean, Wendy and Richard talk a lot about the power of archetype and Tamain and Galadriel are in you know, they, they sort of are part of that same archetype of these immensely powerful yet seemingly frail beings that are just so beautiful and crystalline almost that um, the idea that they could be dangerous is like you would never guess that, but they wield such tremendous power wrapped in this package of, of beauty and seeming frailty that, um, you know, that you, you, you'd be sort of foolish to to assume that they're just you know, innocent. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine Tamane ever becoming a sort of deliberate villain in the story, but I could see a choice that, you know, just because again of her personality, like what we were just talking about where she doesn't have a lot of need for 
flowery language or or even diplomacy. She you know she sort of knows in her deep wisdom what is the right thing to do, and she just is going to do it. I could see like a choice that she said that she has or does or supports the others doing, um, having maybe a fallout for others. And, and, you know, to take it back to the original line of conversation, I mean, that could be, that could be what happens with Rayek and Winnowill, you know, it could be that she just bluntly refuses or to do what Rayek wants and, um, or that there's just something, maybe she suggests that we wipe out Winnowill's spirit, period. I don't know. I don't think she would do that particular but i almost see her maybe not deliberately but almost in the sense of being a force of nature like she could be like a hurricane like it's it's like she's so beyond the like day-to-day trivialities that that a lot of them seem to be dealing with that if she just decided no this is what we're doing and like it wouldn't matter really what anybody else said because it, it wouldn't even enter into her sphere of consideration but I can see that as being a problem. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of what I was saying. Um, but 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 again, I I have to say that I don't see that happening because yes, Tamain is not immersed in those day to day trivialities. But in this very scene, via Sava's explanation, like it's abundantly clear that even though she's not going to participate in that daily mundaneness, it's exactly the whole point of all of this. Like it's exactly what she gave to her people, to her descendants, the ability to live a mundane life that it has, has meaning and adventure and sacrifice and all of those things. So I would be really surprised if she went down, if like her character went down a, a you know a path or a storyline where she robbed anybody of that, you know? Yeah. But I get what you're saying. She's, she, she she does wield a ton of power, and, and this is probably one of the only times that we're actually seeing it. Oh, you know what this also reminds me of? This scene what is um, you know going back to this idea that Final Quest is picking up threads that have been woven throughout the last thirty six years of ElfQuest. This reminds me of the scene when Rayek leaves to go collect the gliders in Siege of Blue Mountain. When Timane was wrapped, still um, in wrap stuff, um, where she went after at the very end of the the original quest, so that she could turn the scroll of colors. Um, but you know she's sitting in the wrap stuff, and Rake is you know he's pissed at Kavi because she has said that the baby died, but you know he senses that she's lying or whatever, and so he's going off in a huff to go see if he can win the gliders to his cause and bring them back to restore the palace. And when he's leaving to go do that, he like sends to Sa- or to to Maine for her blessing, and she's just totally silent. You know, it's the same kind of thing as what's going on here. Like she, she probably could have stopped him, but she knew that his choice was more important, and that he probably had something to learn from it. And ultimately, her decision to say and do nothing, you know, ultimately led to. Rayek stealing the palace, but, but, um, it was, I don't know. I just feel like it's the same kind of thing where, um, Skywise is looking to do something obviously a lot less important in scale. You know, he just wants to take some pods and go collect people, but she's basically just not condoning it. Um, and in, in 
the rake example she was in rap stuff so she couldn't say no but um but anyway i just you know i think it's all very much in her character to respond the way that yeah, she did definitely here yeah she, yeah i agree with you it's the, she she lets her children make their own choices so the other thing in the scene that i wanted to touch on is this idea that sunstream like i thought i thought after last issue he just sent this call out and it was sort of a beacon like you know hey we're here come join us in the palace and and that that was it yeah but apparently it's not like that apparently he is still sending it out and he you know he's sort of in this trance and my my first thought was you know is he is he going to be uh sort of in a in a coma if you will like the you know the gliders like the doors and egg and brace um and just sort of become what he does which is to be the link between all of the elves but they explain or sava explains that that's actually not what's going to happen um that he's not going to be what did she say trapped forever in this spell and that um and then timane says that basically the palace is going to take his this the, the call that that only Sunstream has been able to sort of formulate and and absorb it into itself so that it'll he'll basically be released from it. Exactly, which is really reassuring because otherwise, I mean, I wouldn't want him to be in the living death as it's called, right? That the um, that the doors experienced. This is sort of like the flip side of that. He's almost fulfilling the same type of role or taking on the same type of um, challenge that the doors did, but he's being released from it because the palace will be able to uh, take on the call itself and, and send it out indefinitely, I'm right. assuming. Well, that's the, and that's the difference between the palace and Blue Mountain because the palace is, well, number one, it's made of star stuff. Um, and number two, it's, and, and stuff of the, of the original home world. Right. Um, and it's what the gliders tried to recreate. And maybe, maybe if they had had another 20,000 years or, you know, 5 million years of working with the, the stone of blue mountain, it would be imbued with almost sentience the way that the palace is now, but they never got to that level. So door embrace and egg had to sort of focus everything on it. Whereas the palace has is so magical that it can sort of assume this function that Sunstream has given like structure. That's kind of how I'm thinking of it. Like there's this sort of, I, I think Sun, Sunstream is, is temporarily merging his self with the palace to some degree. And he's actually, imbuing it with this power that's what i mean it's sort of like yeah yeah um but but it's temporary in that respect right like once he's once he's done what he needs to do once he's given the send the call to the palace then he can step back and allow the palace to do the work exactly yeah yeah so it's like a machine that he's programming right yeah yeah yeah. Okay, that's rolling in my brain a little bit. I have to I have to let that idea sink in. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of rolling in my brain too. Um, <laughs> like, where did that come? <laughs> yeah, no, that's. I think that's that's a good way of describing it. It's it's almost like 
and that's what I was trying to struggling a little bit to try to articulate. It's like the palace has the, all of this potential, just like say your computer does, but it actually takes a skilled person to come in and use their talent and their knowledge and their ability to manipulate that power that the machine gives you in, in a certain way. And then the machine can run it. Right. And I, that I just, it's just a tool, right. It, a tool with potential, but the potential isn't activated or accessed until someone with the, the knowledge or the ability or the talent, um, utilizes right. it, which is why no one has done this before or why the palace hasn't been putting out the call in the in the same way because it does the palace all, sort of naturally puts out a call to all elves and it seems to be growing as the pal well and this is the other thing too is that the palace is clearly a vessel that can um, increase its own power and so it's like it crashed on the world of two moons and for whatever reason the the it, a lot of its power got drained away. And then it got covered in a glacier and it was basically dormant in a coma. And then the glacier melted and it put out what essentially was kind of a feeble call, right? You had to be pretty close to it. And there was just this little bit of an aura around it. Um, and, and then all of the gliders magic came and re and they, they sort of, it was like a, a giant jolt of adrenaline into the palace and it re found all of its old power and had even more because of all the gliders magic. And it seems like, again, as the elves are coming in and it is making them more powerful, more magical, they in turn are adding their magic and their power back into it. So it's becoming even more and more powerful as they go. Um, right. Yeah. It's just, it's just like continuously being charged and becoming more and more powerful. So yeah. yeah interesting. Um, all right. So what else, what else went on in this issue that we want to talk about? Um, we talked about Aurori and Winkin. We talked about Suntop or Sunstream and Timane and, and Sava and all that. So, um, uh, okay. So just, uh, briefly, I wanted to go back to Shenshen and Chukapek. We have a few panels of them. I still think there's something that's going to happen romantically between the two. I, I mentioned this in the last episode. I still think it's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I was thinking of you, Ryan, when I read this, because um, I, again, I'm a little bit skeptical or dubious of that idea. But seeing this, I see maybe something going on there. So that's all I'm going to say. I mean, there's not much more to say about those panels anyways. Well, that, well, there is. There is. I mean, and I, I, the, the main thing that I wanted to say about it, I already said, which, which was just the idea that, you know, the elves are hearing this call and some of them are choosing to follow up on it and some of them are not. Um, and Shen Shen is clearly one that's not, and it's a struggle for her. Um, actually, this, uh, I just thought of something else too. This scene is a great example of why Timane is saying no to Skywise about going out and collecting all the elves that they've discovered. Because maybe not all of them want it. You know, and it's this whole idea of, you know, choice. And Rayek just didn't give a rat's ass Skywise, though, could potentially be doing the same thing out of excitement and just desire to want to use the palace. And you know what I'm saying? So so I think Shen Shen in the scene is sort of representing the fact of why they are, are restricting Skywise from doing that and why choice is so you know important here. 
I, I know when, when Tamin said it and she lists the reasons some of them won't make it, um, I immediately was thinking, who could that represent, you know? Um, are we going to see that within the, the series itself? Like, will there be elves who either maybe die on the way or just give up or or don't or ignore it um, like Shen Shen is? Although I don't think Shen Shen really fits the role of ignoring it for the sake of ignoring it. She has another thing that she wants to do, right? She has an, her own quest. Um, but I, I, would, I w- would, wouldn't necessarily say that she's going to if the palace leaves the planet, that she wouldn't necessarily go with it at some point. I don't know. I mean, I could see Shen Shen getting, like, being one of the elves that stays. Well, she could stay with Shukapak and they're going to adopt kids. You know, I mean, I could totally see. (laughs) That's that's Yeah, that's what Shen Shen, that's the path that she goes down. And so, um, but I guess, you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Um, all right, so let's talk about the, the go-backs and Venka and Two-Edge and all of that stuff. Yeah, because we kind of skipped over all of them. Uh, they spent many days traveling through the, uh, the troll caves. They lose track of how many days it's been because they can't see the sun. Um, it's really, really great here the, when they encounter the, um, the underground stream or river. And none of them really know what the <laughs> hell to do because they've never seen flowing water before uh, of this nature. Um, and then of course, Two Edge being the uh, the smart guy that he is, already uh, built a vessel and had it hidden. I liked um, well. One of the things that I liked about this scene is that it it, it kind of confirmed, be, you know, the boat, but then also the comment that Venka says, where she, you know, she she's talking to Two Edge and she says, "So these misfit trolls, like it's obvious that in." the time that they have been up there in the frozen mountains with the go-backs the last, again, 40 plus years that two edge has been wandering just like he always has. So he's been down to the halt to the caverns under the halt. And he knows about the misfit trolls and he knows that cutter has resettled there and he's built a boat and everything. So that was a little bit of a, one of those like, well, how does two edge know where the palace is? You know, I thought he was up here hanging out with you. But obviously, this kind of confirms it that he, you know, he's been wandering, and I think that, of course, makes total sense. But yeah, I agree with you. I love the the gobacks um, being flummoxed at the idea of, well, okay, here's a river of moving water, and there's this thing called a boat. What the hell is that, right? And so, um, but uh, you know, and then we have our our blondie goback stabbing some <laughs> some poor disgusting cave slug to eat. So I know he's really excited to eat it. I'm thinking, wow, buddy. But uh, these are go backs. Yeah. I'm sure they've eaten worse. So it's so funny you called him Blondie because that's exactly <laughs> how I wrote down his name in my notes. Blondie. Yeah, I like that go back guy. I don't know. He's he, yeah. I I want right. to see more. Well, of him speaking now. of go back names, um, you know, later later um, in the issue, we get a couple new uh, go back names, which you know I don't know if we'll ever they'll ever be named again, but um, I'm trying to find their names here. I'm going to let you try it. <laughs> well, the one is, is easy. Gov. He's the one that gets sliced in the back by the misfit troll. And the other one is a little bit more difficult. He's the one who got smashed in the face and is, he's being chided by his buddy for letting his nose blood drip into the water trough. But um, it's either Piat, which I don't think it is. Cause that sounds, I, I think it's Piat. 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 That sounds go backy, right? 
that does yeah. sound go back. Yeah, I was seeing Pyatt. Which that whole that panel was just is just fun because you know you get that little interaction between the two go backs and of course you know a go back would be one to just let his nose bleed everywhere but then you have that great um, scene or sort of in the background of Cutter and Venka kind of embracing and and um, and Venka says to Cutter about the go backs I lead and they do whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure Cutter is thinking fondly of Scott and being like, don't I know it? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Right. And Krim. Um, I, I really like that interaction between the two of them, too, because Venka is a chief now as well. She's a chiefess. And, um, and also just for the fact that um, Cutter helped raise her and they, they have this relationship with each other. Um, it's nice to see that, that they're, you know, they're interacting and they're they're happy to see each other after all these years. Yeah, it's I agree. Something so well. Totally, yeah. And I really, I love. <laughs> this is the fact that that Wendy and Richard pay attention to things like that, and they they actually show. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah, know? yeah. It's just well, I mean, yeah. and everything about about it too. Again, this is just like a teeny tiny little piece of this big group panel, right? And you know, they didn't have to include that sort of funny little joke about the go-backs. And they didn't have to show the kind of reunion of Cutter and Venka in the way that they did, where they're sort of kind of embracing, like holding each other's arms. And, you know, they could have just been standing there talking to each other. And like little subtle things like that, I agree, are, are, are total elf quests. And I feel like there's um, like Venka and Cutter. I don't know. I always feel I've always felt that that they're that they had sort of a unique kind of relationship because of who Venka is and just the way that she is. And now that they're meeting sort of, again, maybe more on even terms because she's a chief, not that either one of them would really factor that in, but it's just, I don't know. I almost see them more as peers now than as Venka just being a tribes person. And that's kind of neat. And that's, and that's completely reflected in like their friendship, but also their peerdom um, in the way that they're embracing there in that, in that panel. She's less a cub to him now, I think. Yeah, she's kind of come into her own. I love um, going back just to the beginning of their uh, journey, um, the scenes of them in the cave and at the river, just the the detail in the um, the scenery and the, the in the cave. It's just so evocative of what that feels like, like this dank, dark cave and uh, it was stalagmites and stalactites and it's... Sunny's coloring it's all in tones of green and it's just so well done I, I actually I really love when Wendy does landscapes and panoramas like this we actually don't see see much of those I, it reminds me of um in book two when Cutter and Skywise were on their journey and we got a few panels of them in these panoramic landscapes uh when they were riding on the the no humps uh yeah and it, it just like these vast landscapes and it sort of gave you an idea of what the world of two moons looks like and there was wildlife in different places and it's a, a lot of the scenes in in the stories are um close-ups of characters uh whether they're talking to each other or, um and you don't really get to see a lot of the background details as far as the environment that they're in in a lot of cases. Um, so I love these these vast, uh, these open panoramic style um, scenes. And obviously those 
take a, a hell of a long time to draw, so I can understand why Wendy would <laughs> would try to avoid them as much as possible. But I I do really appreciate when she does do them because I mean it's really I agree. I work. totally agree, and um, I I I too really liked that this that particular panel where you just see you know again this sort of dark dank cave, but also um, just the cavernous of cavernousness of it, right? That it's it's this big echoing uh chamber multiple chambers going on in there um so yeah i definitely agree that it was kind of cool to see to see that and i think i think probably the reason that wendy chose to draw it that way is that it really communicates the the vastness of this underground area that the gobacks are in and how they could be just the intimidatingness of it do you think that this could being the end of the Gobacks as a tribe for all intents and purposes, because by the end of the city, they've decided that they're going with Palace to Blue Mountain. I I don't think it means that anymore. That it means that that the Sunfolk are finished as a distinct, for lack of a better word, sort of ethnic group of elves. Right. So I think yeah, if the Gobacks do decide to live in the palace the uh, presumably the, it, they will be affected by it as well and their inner magic will awaken but i think that twenty thousand years of culture and evolution don't just go away overnight and i think that they'll still retain some of their again their some of their cultural heritage and uh personality in the same way that the sunfolk will i agree with you to a point but i i wonder how much influence the power has as far as diminishing the individuality of each elf it almost seems like they're becoming more homogenous in a sense like it, the palace's influence on them seems to be bringing them all towards one ideal or type well i i don't i don't know that i would necessarily agree with that i can see why you would would come to that conclusion I think, though, that's more a function of the fact that most of the elves in the palace are not highlight spotlight characters. They're kind of in the background. But I mean, we I think I think Oler is a good example of of the fact that the elves are still perfectly individual and some of them are choosing different ways of being. It's just that, you know, we're not seeing it on camera. For every everyone, you know, I mean, we've we've been told that the sun folk are changing, and that they're so different than who they were when they lived in the sun village. And so, yeah, certainly there is going to be some kind of change going on. But I don't think that means that they're necessarily um, homogenizing and losing their individuality. It's just that there's not time to show every single one of these characters on their individual journeys, you know. So. Yeah, I'm I'm more thinking along the lines though of the original first comers. Uh they they were very much alike in the sense that they were all of one purpose and one sort of mission. Perhaps of um, one heart and one mind. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> um <laughs> So I don't know if that's ultimately what would happen. And I mean, if they are all living within the palace and they go off planet um, and they're still in the planet for however long they're in it for, I, 
I mean, I wonder if they eventually over time it would all sort of coalesce into like one one type of elf. Um, they'd reach it in equilibrium as far as yeah, and like the the extremes on either end would sort of be eliminated to well, some well, degree. Well, certainly I could see. I mean, yes, in in the sense that the Sunfolk are no longer going to be the Sunfolk forever because they're not doing what makes them Sunfolk, which is living in the desert and gardening. In the same way, yes, certainly the Gobacks are going to change. They might not be Gobacks in the sense that they're not living in a harsh, frozen mountain environment, fighting trolls, trying to go back to the palace, right? And certainly there is probably going to be an evolution of of the elves that are living in the palace into essentially a new tribe. And I'm making air quotes because I don't know how much that applies to sort of interplanetary travelers, but yeah, I mean, they'll become something new, but again, I don't know that I would say that they were going to become homogenized or, or, or this idea that they're like just going to be like part of a hive mind or something like that. Kind of what I was thinking, like that eventually they'll become just part of a hive mind and, and lose their individuality or the traits that set each tribe apart, which is what's so interesting about them. You know, I just, I see that there is, it's like a double edged sword and there's a flip side to this whole quest like what do they lose what are they losing in gaining the palace that could be part of the answer to the 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 revelation that is hinted at in the copy for the teaser copy for the final quest volume two graphic novel that we started talking out the podcast tonight talking about right so so maybe that's part of it you know maybe that's part of the obvious thing that's been sitting in front of their faces that, you know, you are going to become something new and different and you're going to lose what you were in the past if you choose to go in the palace. And what does that mean? Because I don't think any of the go-backs are going to go back to the frozen mountain. I, I don't see that happening either. But I think we're, like, you're taking that logic to a certain point and not any further. So you're taking it up to the point where they will no longer be go-backs and they'll lose the thing that you know sort of the characteristics of a go back and on some level yeah that's sad i mean change is hard right and that's one of the major messages of elf quest but you got to take it the next step and it's like well then what will they become you know they will become something new they'll form a new tribe of elves that lives in the palace and travels the stars and that's kind of just as exciting to think about and and well what will they become how will they interact with each other how will their their sort of background their their heritage influence that and i'll say this too i mean i don't know how much of this is going to be canon but i mean we did see a few scenes with two of the palace dwelling elves in the future quest stories um anavi and Moren, you know and they the two of them certainly are not part of a hive mind or lacking individuality or um you know character personality traits that are interesting that's my re- my reaction to the to the idea or the suggestion that you know the elves are who go in the palace are just going to kind of all become kind of like washed out clones of each other um, and not be the unique interesting cultures that they were when they were living on the world of two moons. And then the other thing to think about is that it's it's pretty obvious that not all of the elves are going to go. Some of them are going to stay in the world of two moons, and what will they become? You know what what other new tribes might form out of that. Um, you know, of the of the ones that do end up staying. So this is the end of the go back tribe. It's kind of sad. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree with you too. But like I said, it's it's sad on the one hand, but it's also 
exciting. It's exciting because it's, I want to know what's going to happen next, you know? Um, and that's already really begun happening with the Sunfolk. They're still calling themselves the Sunfolk, but eventually they probably won't. Well, are they, or are they calling themselves palace dwellers now? Yeah, you know, I'd have to go back and see who uses which terms. It's sort of like, it seems to be interchangeable, and both terms are being used at this point. But it's it's almost as though they're getting used to not calling themselves Sunfolk anymore. Because they're really not Sunfolk anymore. <laughs> they're palace dwellers. And, you know, you know, like, thinking about the go-backs, and, yeah, that's exactly what's happened with the Sunfolk already. We've already seen that. They're done. They're done with the Sun Village is over. It's destroyed. It's they're not going back. Think happened to the Frozen Mountain Trolls. Um. Well, I don't know anything really. I mean, we know that at least some of their descendants ended up. They were the ones that found Audrey down in the the Sun Village. So presumably, since the Gobacks. Well, the one go back um, when they're fighting with the misfit trolls is something like it's been a long time since she, you know, her sword felt troll flesh or whatever she says. Um, so, you know, presumably they're not present. The frozen mountain trolls are not present there in the same way that they were back again, 10,000 plus years ago. So um, I don't know. I mean, anything could have happened to them. They could have dispersed. They could have died out of disease they could have you know who knows right we had the uh the war for the palace um but they still had numbers i mean after after that war there were still uh skirmishes going on and then of course 10,000 years passed you're right anything could have happened in that 10,000 years maybe the gobacks destroyed that, them. what a fascinating idea that would be right if the 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 gobacks for lack of something better to do essentially practice genocide and wiped out the, the frozen mountain trolls. I, I was I was trying to avoid using that term, but yeah, that's exactly what it would be. Well, you know, maybe they just got extra hungry and they needed something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Their food stores ran dry. Yeah, who knows? And that's one of those things where maybe we'll never get an answer to it. I don't know. So, all right. So let's talk a little bit about Two Edge here. Because he does a fascinating sort of 180, I feel. Like, we've been seeing him being fairly sane for a while now, um, you know, post-shards, post um, under presumably Venka's influence, you know, partially due to his infatuation with her. Um, yet, you know, he says when he's taking the go-backs on this journey that, you know, who, I don't know who's going to survive. And that sort of was the first hint that he kind of was going to be back into his old, old sort of neutral ways. And we see that it's exactly what happened. When the misfit trolls break through and attack them, he just, you know, tucks himself back into a corner to watch what happens. Um, you know, and, and the caption even says, you know, it's just like in the, the, the grim days long past, he's just going to sit there and silently observe um, he's only on his own side. Um, and so, interesting. But it was kind of, um, I don't know, I love that panel where he's just sort of crouched back there watching. It's so kind of creepy. Where well, I mean, go? this is the whole troll cavern, so he could be anywhere. And he's known this place for presumably almost as long as he's been alive. So that's 15,000 years or, or more. So... You know, he, he knows every nook and cranny of that place. So who knows where he went? Um, but I love that 
Oh, I love that Venka, Venka's reaction. She's like, ah, he's always a slave to his own childish rages, rages. Um, and that was just such a, Ven- a Venka way of responding. Like, ugh, I mean, really? I mean, she basically is, 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 is in essence saying the same thing that you just said, like, two edge, get your shit together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like a child still, you know, throwing a tantrum. And, you know, I was really hoping that there's been so much conjecture about the relationship between I'm pretty sure there will be. It will be at this point. It seems like can't really do much about that. He's gone. Yeah, I I do think I agree Like that is obviously going to be explored more. It has to be. Um, But I do like that. What she says, you know, even though she kind of is frustrated with him and his reaction, she does stand up for him when Cutter says, you know, he's kind of a misfit, too. And she's like, yeah, but he's a shining one. And, And like he's worth it. Right, she sees something in, in him. Um, and then that leads us... I was going to slightly shift the topic. <laughs> um, but that leads us into the, you know, sort of the return, at least in conversation, of the one and only uh, Picknose, <laughs> which I am so excited about because I really, really love the trolls. And I want to see more of them. And, um, and, and you know, he gets... He gets some props from from Clearbrook, you know, who remembers that Picknose and his clan took care of them when they did their long sleep. And um, and this whole idea that I think, you know, it almost seems like they're hinting at, you know, perhaps Picknose trying to convince him to come back to Graming's old kingdom um, to essentially rein in the misfit trolls and put them to some, you know, some good industrious troll work and get them off of the elves back. And luring him in by with the prospect of, you know, there's still a whole bunch of gold here and wealth and riches that you could take advantage of. And um, and, the, and then related to that is that, you know, the idea that they're like, well, maybe we can get Ember to go get a word to him. So I love the fact that, you know, maybe, the, you know, we're going to go back into Ember's branch of the tribe. Maybe they're going to go on a journey in upcoming issues to go visit King Picknose and you know, see where that goes. So I, I, I'm excited about this. Cutter does say that she's uh, got more important things to tend to just now. And what do you make of that? I don't know either. Um, I think, may, I, I mean, that line didn't stand out to me, so I didn't really think about it um, much until you just said it. But pro- I mean, I just took it to mean that she's just, you know, focusing on the daily business of managing the Wolf Rider tribe. And, you know, they're out on a hunt, um, you know, up in the mountains there. So... I love the interaction here with Ember and Tyr, though, where, uh, well, first of all, Ember says that she, she, they they all feel the call, and, and then within the call, Sunstream is able to communicate directly to little sister, in quotes, that the palace is about to move. Um, and then she asked Tyr what his choice is going to be, and uh, not shockingly, he says that he wants to stay with her. Yeah, uh, but it, it's it's interesting to note here as well that he says the pull of the palace and the call in a way that Ember doesn't because he's ostensibly um, full-blooded, or or not full-blooded, but uh, uh, he doesn't have any wolf blood. That's interesting, too, that the the wolf riders themselves don't feel the pull as much as the the immortals. Of that panel, though, I just found it striking uh, when I was going through the issue, with the two of them in profile looking at each other. Um, There's something about the panel... Um, and the way they look is very striking, I found. 
very sensual. It does look like they're about to start making out, but <laughs> and and how appropriate, yeah, how appropriate for the two of them, right? I mean, they're so in love with each other, and then they just recognized, and you know, so I think it's a very fitting look and feel and impression to give us, you know, with how they're positioned in the panel. So, um, yeah. So I really, I really like that um, the panel on that page in the top right hand side of tier where you kind of see him like, like kind of three quarters from sort of a down angle. Um, you know, you really see his features and, and his gray eyes are, are really prominent in that. I really like that. And, and honestly on the, there's a lot of really good tight shots of the characters that, um, you know, that are just kind of classic iconic elf quest art. Um, the page before that, you know, tree stump down in the bottom corner, um, you know, is just really sharp looking there. And um, all right. So there's one more big thing that I had on my list to talk about um, because we are at almost two hours here. So we should probably start winding down, but um, is there anything else? I think you know what it is that I'm going to, where I'm going to go. So is there anything else that we want to talk about before we get to these last two? There's um, a panel. It's where Audrey is uh, shaky. Um, Winkin and the go-backs come out. Do you see the, the swirliness around the panel itself? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, my God. Remember that yes. from Facebook, Wendy posted just those swirls? Yeah, that's what, it's, that's what it was used for, for that panel. And I think that's to indicate the, um, totally. the rock-shaping magic. What a great observation. I completely yeah. missed that. Okay, so, so yeah, I mean, like you were saying before, just what amazing attention to detail I mean, again, Wendy didn't have to do that. She could have just done like a regular panel border, but the time, the fact that she spent her precious art time to do something different with the panel borders. Um, we've talked about this before in past episodes, just that, you know, Wendy really is at the top of her art and her game as far as a comics artist goes. Um, and, and she, frankly, she, has always displayed this kind of amazingness, but um, you know, here we're seeing it, you know, creativity in in page layout. Um, I completely agree with you. I don't have much more to add to that. I mean, it's just you know, she she took the time to to do that and add this this effect, this detail. It's a it's a design element that works within the context of the story and sort of adds to just the the overall effect. There, there, are, there are two other things that I wanted to just quickly note before we get to sort of the, the big last thing I wanted to mention. Um, the first is the, the, uh, the issue starts out with the John and finishes with the John in these very sort of cryptic foreboding scenes and commentary, um, you know, where basically it's like, you know, the, it, 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 we're, we're, it's all about basically what's going to happen next. And basically it's this idea that the Jun is building this fleet and this army to be able to like roam the world to go on like a global hunt for the elves to wipe them out. And, um, but you know, it's, 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 it's not just sort of macho, like I'm going to go kill everybody. It's like so nuanced and layered with like mortality and this idea that, you know, it's going to take 10 years to build the fleet and he, he might not be around. He might not survive that long. A, because I guess humans don't live as long, you know, back then or in these times 
I, you got to guess he's probably in his forties now, at least. Um, so he's no spring chicken by standards of, of that sort of era. And, um, you know, 50 is probably really old. So that, and coupled with the fact that he is still severely wounded by Krim, um, you know, he's wondering like, am I going to last? But he says like, I'm going to make myself last. So I know there's, they're almost melancholy and threatening at the same time. I hate to say this, but like, there's a part of me that's really, um, I feel for him <laughs> slightly. I don't want to, but I do. I mean, he has this vision of what he wants to achieve with his life and he wants to do it before he dies, but he's, he's insane, but he's so sincere about it, about what he wants to do that. I can't help, I can't help, but feel he's, he's driven and he has this aspiration to do this. And it's, um, like I can't help but feel a little bit of respect. Well, that's that's what I meant with like that melancholy note. Like you do, like you you kind of feel bad for him, which is shocking to say. But again, this is the power of Wendy and Richard's storytelling and the and the and the full fleshing out of their characters. Right? They're not just one note characters. Even Angriff Jun, who is to- a total jerk and an asshole, and I hate him. Right? they can still write him in such a way that even though I recognize that he's all of those things, like there's still, I still, I feel the sadness and his, his own anxieties and trepidations about what's going to happen next because he might not be able to achieve his goal. Um, So yeah, you're totally right about that. You know, it's, I think on some level it's sympathy because he recognizes his own mortality. And so we can sympathize with him on in that respect, because we all have things that we want to accomplish in life, right? And his is obviously crazy and evil, but I can't fault him for wanting to do something with his life and fighting to do it because I'm mortal too. So I, I recognize that that human, that very human need. However, the other thing that is a little, like I think probably the most scary about that, the the second scene with the John and his advisor there is what the advisor says that after all that he's done, his the humans love him, and we all know that what blind love can do, right? That's like what leads, or you know, blind following at least anyway um, of a, of these sort of megalomaniac leaders can lead people to do. And so it's one thing to have this Gromal John type leader who you know rules through fear and intimidation and the people don't really love him. And eventually, you know, in that case, what happened, they rose up against him and toppled him. But these people love their John and what would they be willing to do to help him meet his goals? And that does not bode well for the elves at all. No, it doesn't. I mean, you have an entire population now of people who love this megalomaniacal leader. Um, millions of Germans loved Hitler, and look at what happened. And this this might not just end with him going after the elves. I mean, why wouldn't he then, depending on how his campaign goes, uh, invade human populations and try and subjugate I other humans? did to the long riders. <laughs> Building this fleet, though, will give him, you know, the even more options as far as that's concerned. Um, I, I like the fact, though, that it's pointed out that it could take a decade to to actually build this fleet because that makes sense. It would take that long, especially given the technology that they, they currently have at this point. It would take that 10 years. I like that it's not 
uh, fudged in any way. Like, oh, it's, you know, six months later and they've got a, a flotilla of warships. No, it's, <laughs> you know, this is going to take a long time. You know, in that scene, too, a couple of uh, really uh, high point um, art bits. Well, one of them is actually in that Tyr and Ember scene, which is on the same page. But, you know, we get another shot of the sooty, smoky, like teeter on the edge of the Industrial Revolution shot of Citadel Mound, which clearly has been rebuilt, you know, since his since his father, you know, again, was toppled there and Shuna helped burn it down and everything. Um which is just great. It's, it's all done in gray and just really kind of emotes this idea that, you know, you have all these chimneys belching up smoke and, you know, from burning coal or whatever it is that they're, you know, the, the stage that they're in there. Um, so I thought that was really great. And then at the end of the, of the scene with Angriff and his advisor, um, and I think we saw a teaser, but the, the detail um, in that panel of the geometry of the, the, the floor design is really cool. But my favorite part about that is the the ambient light that's coming in through the the, the shutters. And I have to guess that that is um, I have to guess that that's all sunny. I don't know. But, you know, it's definitely an effect of the color. Yeah. And I agree with you. The detail uh, on the the um, the tiling on the floor, that geometrical patterns. Yeah. Um, one thing of note, too, is. I don't know if this was on purpose or not, but what the Jun is wearing, uh, particularly in the um, the very on the very first page, he's wearing this deep V-neck, <laughs> open-chested shirt. And if you look at what Cutter is now changed into, it's uh, his new leathers, and they also have the same open-chested V. Both the the leaders of their their tribes and their uh, are positioned at odds against each other. And it's sort of a, a visual cue uh, between the two. Venka's costume design with the slits in it um, on her hips and on her ribs, to me, was always a visual connector between her and Winnowill. Because at that stage, when, when Venka was first introduced and we saw her wearing that, um, Winnowill had gill slits on her, on, in her ribcage. And so I always thought that was an interesting visual parallel in, in, you know, sort of outer appearance, clothing, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, now we see the, the Jun and Cutter both sporting sort of V-necked shirts, although Cutter does, it, it's winter, so his, he does have like an under fur under there. But I guess, I guess Angriff Jun has such a furry chest that, you know, he's covered in that department. <laughs> uh, we didn't, I know what you want to get to, the final but we didn't talk about that scene, that page with um, Cutter and Sky. That's that's, yeah, that's the second thing that I forgot. Um, so the first was just touching on the Anger of Jun scenes, but yeah, I mean, this we, we get this amazing page again, classic ElfQuest, Cutter and Skywise, just having a conversation. Um, as we have seen them in the past, they really, you know, when they're just being themselves with themselves, they don't even have to look at each other. You know, they're often just sort of looking off into the distance, just being in each other's company. And yeah, and it's just kind of awesome. Um, and they're munching away on dreamberries. And uh, this is where Skyways reveals that he's actually not going with the palace, which is kind of huge. In a way, it makes me so happy because it really kind of feels like 
just a little piece of the past is being preserved with Skywise and Cutter together again. And again, it makes me wonder what what's next for them. Like, what is their next adventure going to be? Pike's not going either, which we had talked about too. It's, you know, what was Pike going to do? You know, because he specifically says a couple issues ago that the whole reason he came back was to be near the palace so that he could be near Scott and Krim. But I mean, it's totally in character for him that he would decide not to. Just that, I mean, what does Cutter say? He's just not cut out to be a palace dweller. And of course, that makes total sense. So This is the core of what ElfQuest is, right? The relationship between these two. So whenever we get scenes between just the two of them, it's, it's really um, special. Let's, let's move on to the last big whopper that happens. So we're, of course, talking about the final culmination. Well, I shouldn't say final, but like the, the culmination of all of everything that's been going on with Strongbow and Moonshade. Um, the trigger has actually been pulled and Moonshade is going with the palace and she is physically at least separating from Strongbow. And my reaction to this is, you know, even though it's, you know, saw it coming and it's not, it's been basically said that this is what, where this was going, it's still like a kick in the gut for me anyway. I mean, it really pulled at the emotions when I was reading this and, you know, to see Strongbow so sad and so not able to understand why this is happening and, you know, Moonshade trying to be true to herself and, and owning that she's changed is just, you know, this is like really heavy, deep stuff and is so resonant in the real world, even though it's fantasy, you know, it's, again, this is, a great example of what makes ElfQuest amazing. The This entire plot point, it's been very authentically dealt with. I understand the motivations of both of these characters. It's very sad, but I understand why this is happening. And I, I respect both of their choices. Well said. That's exactly my reaction, too. Um, and I think you're like authentic is, is a really great word to use here. Um, you know, so often when we see characters splitting in any kind of, you know, fiction, it's so easy to make one the villain or, you know, just portray it through the, like one or the other's lens. And yet again, we see Wendy and Richard kind of throwing off the shackles of what you're supposed to do and choosing to do this in a way that is so reflective and authentic to their own characters. And the fact that, you know, they do respect each other and, and the genders really are on par with each other. So in other words, you don't, you know, this isn't being traded as like, well, you know, he's just, he's just an asshole or, uh, you know, you know, an abuser or he disrespected and she's not being portrayed as like the victim or the sobbing, you know, left behind or on the flip side, like, you know, the slut whore who cheated on the husband and hurt him, you know, like they're being treated the way that ElfQuest is always treated their characters and those are as like fully formed people and you know with no sort of stereotype or cliche or you know gender crap going on in there you know they're 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 equal individuals and they're being portrayed that way and it's it's kind of amazing it's really refreshing actually in fiction to see something like that because you know so much of what we're fed by the media is is gendered in one way or the other in a stereotype it's very balanced believable motivations for what they're doing it's beautiful when they're embracing each other at the end just before they part and they're both weeping i mean it's it's heart-wrenching but it's so it's so beautiful the the way they're it's rendered well going back to their first scene back on let's see what page is it page 13 where they're having a conversation 
And, you know, Moonshade is saying, like, please come with me. And Strongbow is basically like, I can't. This is this is home for us and for me. Um, you know, this tree, this den. And this kind of shocked me a little bit that, you know, he says that, you know, the way is the smaller truth and that I curse the day that Tamane ever showed us the larger. Like, we've never heard him come out against her or, you know, and, and probably the only thing that could is what's happening is Moonshade separating from him to follow her own path. Um, I don't think he really means it. I don't think he means it in a, in a, in a really cursing, damning kind of way, but, but still it's a powerful thing for him to say. It really shows how deeply this is impacting him. But um, level of frustration, right? That's how he's expressing how frustrated he is. Well, the last thing I want to say about, about this scene, um, which is really essentially how the issue ends um, is damn it. If you go back and read dream time and you read their dream, it's like, this is it. I mean, it was all written right there. I mean, that last panel with Moonshade fading away into the palace and Strongbow kind of standing there in silhouette is just so evocative of that last panel of their dream where the one one wolf kind of fades away and the other one is left by themselves. So I think we should probably wrap it up. Any final thoughts on, on the issue? Well, just I wanted to add to that with the Strongbow and Moonshade that it's who would have ever guessed that out of all of the Wolf Rider tribes, that Moonshade would be the one to choose to go with the palace while the rest of them stay. Yeah. No? Like, we, exactly. we would never have seen that coming, but it makes complete sense now. Exactly. It really does. It does. I mean, again, it, the whole thing was handled in a very believable way. You know, that just makes it all the more painful, I think, because it is so real feeling. No surprise here. I'm pretty blown away by what we've seen so far and excited me for too the i can't wait for issue 10 when i see cat fight between arori and audrey over winkin <laughs> scratch your eyes out um, <laughs> no in, in, in all seriousness i am actually really looking forward to the next issue already because um you know we we've already seen the preview for it like not the pages but like the description of it and the cover and the cover of course um and, and and let's save this conversation for then, but once we get the issue, but the cover shows Skywise and this, you know, silver haired elf woman who kind of looks like Tim Ayn, but kind of doesn't. And of course, everyone is trying to figure that out. So um, and then the other thing that I'm excited about for that next issue is that there's there's it's 10 years down the line. So we're going to get. You know, we will get instant gratification to see what happens with the Jun's fleet. I have to guess that, you know, he'll have it built. But, like, what state will he be in? And, um, again, on that cover, it looks like he's not in such great shape. Yeah, but, again, I don't want to get into all of those details. Let's save that for the next podcast. Just briefly, though, uh, that conversation between Cutter and Skywise. He says, every elf that's searching has to find the palace without your help. Who knows how long that will take? Well, my guess is 10 years. And we know that there's going to be a reunion in the Holt. The palace is going to return. So I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to arrive with all of the elves who finally made it to the palace. And it's taken a decade for them all to gather there. All right. Well, let's I think that's a perfect spot to leave us. And because now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to bed. And that is exactly what I'm going to be thinking about until I fall asleep and wondering (laughs) what, you know, who all is going to actually be in the palace. So. All right. Awesome. Well, another great episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time, um, enjoy your elf quest. The music that you heard at the top of the podcast was a track called Hunting for Experience by Epicus from their album An Epic Journey. 
You can find music by Epicus and thousands of other artists royalty-free for your podcast or multimedia projects on jamendo.com. That's J-A-M-E-N-D-O dot com. Well, that's it for this episode of the ElfQuest Show podcast. As always, you can join the discussions on ElfQuest.com, on Twitter at, at ElfQuest, or on any of several Facebook pages, including the official ElfQuest Facebook page and the ElfQuest Facebook fan page. Don't forget, you can read the entire ElfQuest back catalog at ElfQuest.com, along with tons of other great stuff like character bios, behind-the-scenes features, and more. The Final Quest is published by Dark Horse Comics, and you can get the latest issue of ElfQuest the minute it comes out at digital.darkhorse.com. Until next time, shade and sweet water. <laughs>